My name's Wesley. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Good morning to each of you. If you're brand new with us, we welcome you here. Thanks for being with us at Lakeside. And we are uh, right in the middle of our sermon series through 2 Corinthians entitled uh, Powerful Grace for Weak People. And so uh, as we continue to uh, move forward in this series, as I say pretty much every time, um, this book has been written for me <laughs> in uh, the timing of the spirit of us preaching through this uh, section of the Bible has just been uh, an enriching experience. And so we're going to dive into finish chapter 6 and begin the first verse of chapter 7. And so if you'd open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we will be there. Read this passage at all or at first glance and you've been with us through this sermon series, uh, through especially particularly chapters 4 through 6, you'll kind of notice that at first glance this section seems a little bit disjointed. Doesn't maybe fit right at the beginning. Uh, Paul is just finishing in chapters 4 and 5 a very powerful explanation of the gospel, particularly gospel reconciliation. And he implores the Corinthians to accept the truth of God's work both in Jesus and in himself, in his apostolic ministry, all right? And if you remember, Paul is facing some harsh critics in the church at Corinth. He is no, he's not there presently at this time, so he's writing a letter to this church as they work through the tension and the discord between them. And he challenges these, these believers in the ancient city of Corinth to open up their hearts towards him as he has done to them. If you remember back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 that we spoke to a couple weeks ago. And he's, he's asking them, he's imploring them to open up their lives to him as he has opened up his, lives, his life to them. They are restricted, if you look in back in uh, verse 12 and 13, they are restricted in their own affections, okay? And so Paul calls them out directly and says, the problem is on your end, the problem is with your own affections, your own heart posture. And so this next section that we're going to look at today is really an explanation of why this restriction or confinement within the Corinthian believers' hearts is present in the first place. And so we're going to take a look at this passage together. So follow along with me uh, on the screen behind me or in your Bibles in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses beginning in verse 14. We're going to read through 7, verse 1. Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with unbelievers? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Dear family, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body or flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you 
open up our eyes today. Spirit, would you just give us an incredible amount of clarity through your word and allow this ancient text to speak to us in the present day. And so Jesus, we worship you, we adore you, and we need you. In a day and age where discord is high, tensions are rampant, and the need for reconciliation is felt all the more. Would you help your people, Christians, the church, to rise up and live out the gospel today? So speak to us. We need you. May our hearts be ready for whatever you'd have us to obey you today. Give us the courage. Give us the strength, the fortitude and resolve to trust that you are good and that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. We love you and ask these things in your name. Amen. Paul opens up this passage, this particular section, with an imperative, a command. He is imploring the Corinthians with this command in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This passage has often been understood to speak of marriage, and rightfully so, but if we take a closer look at this text, which we will today, it has much broader ramifications and implications than just marriage. To be unequally yoked means this. What Paul is attempting to convey is that it means basically unfit partnerships or incongruent relationships, which is at the heart of what Paul is going to address here, okay? So this is, this is what he means. Incompatibility arises out of fundamental, fundamental presuppositions that are diametrically opposed. So he's saying that it's the behaviors, goals, and pursuits in life that are driven by vastly different motivations, it's these behaviors, motivations that have completely different starting points. And so Paul begins by answering the question, what's the big deal with being unequally yoked? So he gives this command and he's going to answer this question of what's the big deal? Why is this even an issue? Why should we even care about this? 2,000 years later after Paul writes this. But before we move on, we must first know what he means by unbelievers, okay? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Surely, he does not mean no interaction or association with not yet believing people, okay? Some would maybe say that they would go that far that Paul is saying that he is not because that would be blatantly against the entirety of Paul's ministry, okay? His ministry, his apostleship, and his teachings. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying you can't hang out with people that don't know Jesus. He's actually saying quite the opposite. But what is he saying? Paul is saying, and what he means is he is addressing deep relationships and partnerships with people who at their core 
are disbelievers or unbelievers. Let's unpack this a bit. Verse 14. This can be both people within, within the church, and outside the church. Okay? And in this specific context, Paul is speaking to problems within the church at Corinth and with people who called themselves Christians. Okay? It's likely that he has his opponents in mind. These flashy, self-proclaimed super apostles that we'll find out that he's been talking about all through the book and we will find out more as the book unfolds, the letter unfolds. Unbelievers, then, are both pagans in general and people within the church who project themselves as Christians but at their core are not. They are unbelievers. All right? So follow with me. We're going to pack this. Paul begins to explain this initial imperative of don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers with five rhetorical questions in verses 14 through 16. Let's take a look at them real quick. Each of these questions is to be answered with a resounding none, okay? The first one there is in verse 16, or uh, verse 14, he says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This idea of partnership carries the idea of sharing or participation, okay? The second one, fellowship, what fellowship has light with darkness, and of course, fellowship is this close relationship or association with mutual interests and sharing. Accord, the third one, would accord as Christ with Belial, which is an uh, a obscure word, an ancient word for basically Satan, okay? What relationship does Christ have with, the, with, with, with Satan? And, he's, and he says this, the word accord there is, again, you're seeing a theme, is shared interests, harmony, or being in agreement with. The fourth one, portion. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And that word portion conveys the idea of a part or a shared lot. What he is saying is what God gives to believers, what God appropriates to believers cannot be shared. There's no portion, there's no share, there's no part with people who don't believe. Okay? This is what's going on. And so the answer to the question of what's the big deal of being unequally yoked with unbelievers is that it is completely incompatible. It's absolutely nonsensical for the two to be combined. And he ends with the word agreement. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And this is where he climaxes his, his, his rhetorical questions here. And this, again, the word agreement is the idea of union or mutual consent. As these incompatible relationships climax with the imagery of the temple. All right? And so he addresses this question of what's the big deal. And the big deal is, is it doesn't make any sense. They are completely incompatible, these two. That is why. And so he then answers the second question. Why should we care? What's the big deal? And then why should we care? And Paul continues by invoking vivid imagery that everyone in his day would have readily understood. He talks about temple. Now, what makes this a little bit 
difficult for us here in America in 2020 is 2,000 plus years removed. We have a bit more work to do. But I think the idea can be easily captured. Think with me. Temple imagery is where God's presence dwelt. If you have any knowledge of the Bible or if you've read any stories of the Old Testament, the idea of the temple or the tabernacle, and even today in Israel, the Temple Mount is a very sacred place. Okay? It's where God dwelt in the Old Covenant era. Temple imagery would have been readily understood by everyone in Paul's day. Even in pagan cultic worship, their temple was where deity dwelt. So it's not just Judeo-Christians, but even in cultic worship. And so the imagery that Paul sets up here in verse 16 is not between God's temple and other temples, okay? He's not talking about that distinction. But it's about the mixture or conflation of idols in God's temple, okay? That's the problem. That's the rub. So in order to help us better understand this, we got to go back to 2 Kings chapter 21. And there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 21 in the Old Testament about a guy by the name of Manasseh, King Manasseh, who sets up idols of Asherah as a fertility goddess, ancient times, and altars for Baal in the temple of God. Okay, verses two, or verses four and seven, he sets up, king, the king of Israel sets up these idols in God's temple and desecrates it. He even goes a step further and sacrifices his own son. Yo, he sacrifices his own son on the altar in God's temple to Baal. Bad stuff going on. In verse 9, the narrator says this about King Manasseh. He is said to have done more evil than the pagan nations before him. You see that? So what's the, what's, what's the big deal? What's the problem here? What makes King Manasseh's idolatry more egregious than the pagans before him is not the idolatry, the sacrifices, and the altars themselves. They're bad, don't get me wrong. But that's not what makes the issue more egregious. The problem here is the amalgamation of those practices within the temple. It's the desecration of the holy place, the place, dwelling place of God. It's the confluence of idolatry in the temple is what makes this offense so egregious, okay? So that story thinking about temple worship, the place where God dwells, you desecrate it. Paul is bringing this forward, this idea. In verse 16, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. So what relationship does the temple of God have with idols? And the answer is a resounding none. There is no relationship. And then he makes this statement, for we are the temple of the living God. He takes this common temple imagery, and brings it into the new covenant era of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because in the former covenant, God dwelt with and among his people via the temple. But now in the new covenant, God by his spirit dwells in. It's not just among and with, it's in 
his people. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So the fundamental difference is God is now inside of us. And his people are now the new temple, the place where the living God dwells. And so the dwelling place of God is no longer about buildings, but it's about a person and a people. The person being Jesus and the people being the church. And this is why we should care about being unequally yoked. This is why it matters. Because temples cannot house holiness and profanity. Do you see the rub? Point of clarification. We, as 21st century Christians, equate temples and church as buildings. And I want to remind you, as we do constantly at Lakeside, God's church is not this building. Okay? That's why people have problems is because they have bad theology and they think the building is somehow sacred. It's not anymore in the new covenant. Okay? So regardless of what the color the carpet is or the chairs, whether you have pews, how, it doesn't matter. Okay, The temple is people. It's the church. And that's what matters. And so in verse 16, he says, we are the temple of the living God, or literally the God, the one who is living. You see, the emphasis is upon the living, and it's in contrast to the lifeless idols, the idols that can't speak, that can't listen, that can't hear, and can't see. This God who is living is the, 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 the dynamic, active power of God who energizes and infuses life into lifeless things, creation. The life-speaking God. The same Jesus who takes on human flesh and tells dead people to rise and lame people to walk and blind people to see is that kind of living power pulsating through Jesus and now his people. The life of the living God in his people is not static it's not merely a transactional relationship. But it's about an active, living God who is on the move among his people, calling us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you believe that? Does that move you? Does it stir you? This is why we should care, man. This is why it matters. Because our devotion to God as his temple calls us to a life that is different. It's different. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 helps us understand this partnership with Jesus. This passage specifically addresses and describes why suffering matters and why Christians are often and should be marked with a life of suffering. Real popular message, right? I know. But this is what's at stake in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says that I may know him in the power of of his resurrection and the fellowship 
and share and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, suffering matters because it brings about and bears the likeness and image of God. He will not waste your suffering, just like he did not waste Jesus' suffering. Many of you are in tough places. We as pastors and church leaders pray for you weekly. Some of you have suffered immensely, and 2020 doesn't seem to be changing. Your suffering matters. Because in your suffering, Jesus, by his spirit, is doing a work that is transformative. He's doing it. Because here's the thing, when we partner ourselves with and fellowship with the one who suffers and knows what suffering is, we become what we worship. If you read Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, it will tell you that you will become what you were like what what you worship if we worship and fellowship with lifeless life-sucking idols we will become like them empty lifeless but if we worship and fellowship with Jesus in suffering we will become like the living life-giving God incarnate we we what we commit ourselves to is what we will become and so that's why we should care. That's why it matters who we are partnered with in this life. It matters. It matters. Paul goes on to cite three Old Testament passages that answer a third and final question. His first question was, what's the big deal with being unequally yoked? And then he has just answered why we should care. We should care because Jesus paid the ultimate price and we are now temples, the place where the living God dwells. And so when desecration and profanity are housed in the same place that God is, it is incompatible. And so then the question is, is how do we live? How is that possible? We could just go back to Old Testament law and say, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? And the church has done that. Oh, and the church has failed miserably. We've made it all about law. All about the things you can do and can't do, devoid of gospel. So the question is, is how do we live? And Paul focuses on being the temple of God, both individually and corporately, okay? The Bible talks about us as a church family being a temple. He talks about the whole church worldwide as being a temple, and he talks about us as individuals being a temple. In the new covenant, because of Jesus and his Holy Spirit, those three dynamics are temples. And so he's addressing both individual and corporate as it relates to being unequally yoked.
The first Old Testament citation in verse 16 is this. If you read verse 16, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This comes from Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37. And those passages speak to this. Leviticus 26 begins with a call against idolatry, okay? And this is where your pastors kind of geek out when we start studying the scriptures and the intricacies of the text. It's absolutely mind-blowing how these authors weave all of this together into a coherent theme. He takes Leviticus 26, which is part of the law. He takes Ezekiel 37, which is part of the prophets, and he combines these two passages to bring it to bear in his present day. And Leviticus 26 is a call against idolatry to keep the Sabbath and revere the sanctuary or the dwelling place of God, okay? It's about covenant faithfulness and the blessings and promises from God to his people, And it's a reminder of God's deliverance from the yoke, and that word is intentional, the yoke of of Egypt's bondage, okay? And so Paul takes this idea of being under a yoke of bondage, and he uses a play on words of being unequally yoked. And he's saying that being delivered from Egypt's bondage was the first exodus, And now because of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the second exodus delivers us from the yoke of sin and death. You see the connection? They're both deliverance out of evil. Ezekiel 37 also addresses idolatry, but it's in the context of God's future salvation through the Davidic king. And God's covenant will be eternal and his dwelling place will be with them forever. And so this is Kind of amazing. Paul takes both of these passages, one from the law, one from the prophets, and guess who says that on the law and prophets hang all these things? Jesus. He takes a passage out of the law, takes a passage out of the prophets, brings them to bear in Jesus. And he says, and he centers his premise on Christians being the temple now because of Jesus' finished work in the new covenant that frees people from bondage. Do you see that connection? God's presence and his relational initiation with his people is the impetus for their sanctification and their pursuit of purity. This is why it matters. This is why holiness matters is because God has pursued you and called you to live a life and invites you into a life of sanctification, of, which is a fancy word for cleansing, of being a set apart. Our good, our good is founded on God's promises towards us in Jesus. And this passage here begins to address how do we live. It's because God dwells with us And he calls us to himself. The second Old Testament citation is in verse 17. And it's from Isaiah 52, 11, which is a prophecy of future salvation and a coming restoration. It says, therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Three commands. Don't do this. 
In order to understand these three commands, you've got to understand Isaiah 52, that couched in the middle of this incredible promise from God is a triple exhortation to remain pure. Go out, be separate, don't touch. And on Isaiah's day, it was a call for the people who were returning back to Jerusalem after their Babylonian exile. It's people returning back to Jerusalem with the temple vessels. As they put these vessels back in the temple, the place where God dwells, he tells them to not become entangled in the things that put them in exile in the first place. And he has these three commands. Go out, be separate, don't touch. Again, it's keeping the temple, the dwelling place of God, holy and pure in covenant faithfulness. Do you see this? Okay? Last third, the third and final Old Testament citation comes from 2 Samuel 7 and Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 20. Okay? And what this passage is here in verse 17, end of 17, he says, then I will welcome you. Back to promises again. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me. In 2 Samuel 7, it's a promise to David. And the Davidic promise is closely linked to the Exodus account and to restoration theology in Ezekiel. Amazing. It's all connected. Exodus, David, Ezekiel, Jesus they're all connected. And Paul highlights this and says that the three promises here in verse 17 and 18 round out the seven promises of this passage. You see that? The seven promises of I will make my dwelling, I will walk, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will welcome you, I will be a father, and you will be my sons and daughters. And if you know anything about the Bible, the number seven is extremely significant. The promises of God are found here in this passage, 2 Corinthians 6, and they draw us back to how we should live. Paul says that when people respond to God's promise of dwelling with us and in us, and then take the exhortation or these commands, these three commands in the middle, to remain pure and set apart seriously, when we do both of these, you see that the relationship then shifts from temple to family. It moves from spatial to relational. The same God is now called father and the people are now called sons and daughters. And so Paul closes out this section by highlighting seven of God's promises towards his people. <laughs> seven verse one, since we have these promises beloved, promises of God, and he finishes with a final invitation to pursue purity. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, these promises take us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 20. You remember that? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in Jesus, it is always yes for all the promises of God. Every single one, these seven included, 
find their yes in Jesus. And this is why, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. <laughs> Amazing. All the promises are yes and amen, as we just sang. You see the final invitation in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1, is a plea for cleansing both externally and internally. You see that flesh and spirit? He's begging them, cleanse yourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, both externally and internally. Cleanse yourself. Both individually and corporately, he uses plural, let us cleanse ourselves, both individually and corporately. The idea of bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God is the fullness of progressive sanctification. This is why Christians still sin. It's because we haven't experienced the fullness of God's eternal cleansing. Sin is not eradicated yet. That is in the final day. But sin's penalty and sin's power over us is defeated. We're waiting for sin's presence to be eradicated. And that will happen in the final day. So Paul answers this question, how do we live? By directing his readers back to the gospel. All of these promises go back to Jesus. That God chooses and accepts us and calls us to covenant faithfulness in partnership with the Spirit. And so it matters being unequally yoked with unbelievers matters. Playing around, dinking around with sin matters. Not being serious, not being quick to confess, not taking your own heart seriously matters. The call to cleanse assumes that you have and will continue to have sin. It's not about perfectionism, okay? It's about progressive sanctification, progressively cleansing ourselves by the gospel and the good news. See, and this is the beautiful part about the Christian faith because no other faith out there is like this because God's invitation to you and Jesus always stands. It doesn't matter if you send your brains out this week. God's invitation to you and Jesus always stands. It doesn't matter if you've relapsed for the 20,000th time. God's promises in Jesus and his invitation to you always stands. And that should move us. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed or the sins of omission, those that we've failed to do, okay? That's something that's not talked about much in the church. Sins of omission. The things that Jesus tells us to do and we're like, nope, not gonna do it. You know that those are just as problematic as the sins of commission, of doing the things that we know we're not supposed to do, right? If you're a parent, you understand that. It's not so much about the sin and not sinning. And that's why you hear us here at Lakeside. We're not harping on the things you do because we're, what we do is address who you are, the being. 
And when you address the being, then your doing changes. I tell my sons all the time, daddy's not angry with you. You're my son. You will always be my son, but we don't do this in the Koba household. Your sonship dictates what you do. And God's favor over you as his son and daughter should dictate what you do if you're truly a child. See, it's not so much about the sin and the sinning, but it's about your heart response. This is why in counseling, when we have people that just don't want to change, they just refuse, it tells us a lot about where they're at. It really does. And if you've sat here for decades at Lakeside Church and listened to countless sermons and your heart has seldom changed, this is the essence of what Paul is addressing. He's calling you out of and away from. It's an invitation to stop doing that. You see, church people can be some of the hardest unbelievers to reach. Church people can be some of the hardest unbelievers to reach. Why? Is because they are so callous and sometimes extremely arrogant in that they refuse to change. They refuse to be called out. They refuse to repent. And the call of the Apostle Paul is to keep fighting the flesh as you live your life in reverence and devotion to God. Keep fighting the flesh and keep on pursuing purity and holiness until the day of Jesus Christ. Three thoughts as we close that I hope will bring all of this together. There's a lot in this passage. It's probably one of the harder passages that I've preached. But I hope these ways of application will help you understand. Number one, in order to understand the commands of God, you must first understand his promises. Okay? In order to understand the commands of God, you gotta first understand its promises. This is where the church runs into problems is because we only talk about the commands. And at Lakeside, we wanna talk about the promises. Because when you understand the promises, the commands makes total sense. We're gonna talk about sonship first. We're gonna talk about adoption and identity first before we talk about how you do and what you do. And so in order to understand the commands of God, you must first understand his promises. Listen, God will never ask you to do something that he's not willing to give and has not already provided. The promises of God are in Jesus and this is good news. This is gospel. In our suffering, we must go back to the gospel. Some of you are in places where you don't like. You're just asking God to take them away or take me home. I don't care. Keep in the suffering. Keep persevering. Keep allowing God to cleanse your heart and change you. Some of you struggle with sin, deep sin. You know it, your family knows it, your spouse knows it. And you refuse 
Some of you are refusing to change. Can I invite you to the promises of God? <laughs> they find their yes and amen in Jesus, and you have full permission and 100% grace to let them go. It won't kill you. God will not, God will not act in anger towards you. His grace is always there. Number two, it's not separation from sin and evil that provides the grounds or means for our relationship with God, all right? If you're sitting here and be like, yeah, yeah, we, the church needs to be more pure. Like, go get them, Wesley, okay? You've missed the point. It's not so much about the external because the temple is here. The temple is here. The call of Paul on our lives and the gospel to cleanse ourselves is right here. It's with Christians. And so can we stop obsessing about everything that's happening outside of the church? Listening to Christians bemoan about the Super Bowl halftime is absolutely insane. And it's insane because the Super Bowl is a pagan holiday. That's what it is. And so we can't get bent out of shape because pagans are doing what pagans do. We've got to deal with the own sexual misconduct in our own hearts. You know, the kind that Jesus says, if you look upon a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. That kind. That kind. Talking about the temple right here. Don't worry about everything else. You see, Separation from evil and sin, it's not about that so much that provides the grounds or means for our relationship with God, but it's God's relationship with us that demands the call to be separate. You see the difference? That when saying yes to marriage, you're saying no to everything else, right? And so sure, you can focus on, oh man, marriage is just a tether, it's just bondage. I can't say everything. Like you can look at it that way, absolutely. But that's not the design or intent of marriage. An inheritance. You get a beautiful mansion and an inheritance. You're the only, whatever, great nephew left in the family, and you get this massive house. You take that house and you absolutely trash it. You can do that. You can absolutely do that. But what does that do for your family line? What does that do for your inheritance? What does that do? How is that really productive in the light of the reality that you have an inheritance that is eternal in the heavens, undefiled, that will never perish? And so often Christians end up treating the church their lives, their bodies, as if they live like unbelievers. And God calls us and invites us to something so much better. Devotion to God through separation from evil leads us to intimacy with God. Maybe God is distant is because 
you and I are unwilling to deal with the sin in our lives. Maybe. Maybe that's why. Thirdly and lastly, this passage is an invitation long before it's a call to change behavior. God invites you long before he tells you what to do. The greater evil is within our hearts, within the hearts of Christians and within the church itself. That is the greater evil because it's desecration. And so we must stop lamenting about how everyone else around us is not living up to our Christian standards. We must stop bemoaning the fact that America is not a Christian nation. Like, it doesn't matter. Right here is what matters, okay? We've got to take this seriously as Christians. Can we start with the sins within our own house and with our own hearts, both as individuals and as a church? It starts with us as pastors, as church leaders. We've got to reckon with the sin in our own hearts in order to lead Lakeside into a place of sanctification and purity? Do we realize that the sins of omission, of not doing the things that Jesus calls us to do, to not forgive, we're not forgiving, we're not loving, we're not generous, those things that we refuse to do in the face of Jesus are just as grievous as the sins of commission, of doing the things that we know we're not supposed to. And so these questions lead us and I hope help us understand that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And our goal here at Lakeside Church is to always take you back to him, always. No matter what kind of week you've had, no, mo no matter what kind of hangups you have in your life, we wanna bring you back to the one who will one day make all things right. He's done it in the cross, he's doing it in his spirit, and he will ultimately do it in all of creation when he comes back. Let's stay faithful until that day.